Welcome to Broken Catholic, the number one Catholic voice in America. Why? Because I take on what's important to you. Things like why the world isn't working right now. We all get it's not working. There's too much hatred. There's too much division, even amongst us believers. Why are we all fighting each other? I don't get it. Plus, I tackle unspeakable topics that you may secretly struggle with, but won't admit. I'm your host, your coach, your friend, Joseph Warren. I'm also a broken Catholic and former atheist. And God spared my life. I was almost murdered twice. Why did he spare me? Because he had a higher purpose for my life. And I believe I'm starting to live that calling right now. This show was created for you, the person who wants to be accepted, who wants to be loved, and who wants to be reminded that God has a higher purpose for your life. If this is your first time joining us, I just want to thank you for being here. And if you're one of the thousands of listeners in over 34 countries who listen to the show every single week, thank you for being here every single week. The show does not happen without you. Today, our featured guest is Trent Horn. And Trent is a famous best-selling Catholic author and apologist for CatholicAnswers.com. Now, as a staff apologist, he specializes in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with them. Trent models that approach each week on his radio program, Catholic Answers Live, where he dialogues with atheists, pro-choice advocates, and other non-Catholic callers. He's also an adjunct adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles Co- uh, College, and the author of seven books, including Answering Atheism, The Case for Catholicism, and Why We're Catholic. Today, we're going to really dive into Answering Atheism, and here's why. I really believe that right now, in this time, there is so much divisiveness between believers and non-believers, right? And it's a whole separate show, you know, division amongst believers. But today we're going to talk about believers and non-believers. And why do Christians occur as such a threat to atheists, right? And we're going to get into that. And, And how do we have those conversations in a loving way rather than a defensive way or coming from a place of powerlessness? So I just want to read this on Trent's book, Answering Atheism. I love the preview. I'm going to give you a preview today, BC Nation, Broken Catholic Nation. So here's the preview. Today's new atheists don't just deny God's existence as the old atheists did. They consider it their duty to scorn and ridicule religious beliefs of others. We don't need new answers for this aggressive modern strain of unbelief. We need a new approach. In his book, Answering Atheism, Trent Horn responds with a fresh and useful resource for the God debate based on reason, common sense, and more importantly, a charitable charitable approach that respects atheist sincerity and goodwill, making this book suitable for believers and for skeptics and seekers. So not just for believers, but for skeptics and seekers. And here's the, the three things I love that you're, you tackle in your book, uh, Trent. Reconciling human evil and suffering with the existence of a loving and all-powerful God. Like, how do we communicate that? We know it, but others don't just don't get it. So how do we communicate that? Number two, whether the empirical sciences have eliminated the need for God, or in fact, point directly to him. And number three, how atheists usually deny moral laws in theory, but seldom in practice. 
and I have atheist friends that literally are some of the best Christians out there. Uh, and Trent, I say it this way, atheists are just, um, are just uh, Catholics with daddy issues, you know, capital D, right? We're, they're just in denial. It's like we all have, we all have that, that hole in our heart, that God-sized hole. So Trent, welcome to the show. Go ahead and fill in some of the gaps in that intro, would you? Well, I think you did a wonderful job, Joseph, in introducing myself and my work. I'm really grateful to be on the show with you. And yeah, that's basically my career and what I've done to explain and defend the Catholic faith as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. Uh, I live in San Diego now. I'm married. I have two children. And what I really strive to do is answer people's questions, their arguments against the faith, and really also model for people, especially on my podcast and on Catholic Answers Live, how to answer these questions, how to answer these arguments, but how to do it in a loving way. I love that. And it's so important, right? Because if we're going to say that we are followers of Christ and we show up with anger and contempt uh, for non-believers, like what the heck? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So let's get right into this. I always start uh, this show the same way, Trent. Why do you think that the world isn't working right now? I think the world isn't working right now for the same reason it hasn't been working through all of human history. Human beings uh, in their hearts move away from what God wants for them and choose what they want for themselves. And that would really be the definition of sin. The reason the world doesn't work right is sin. And that's a word that many modern people don't like, but it's a word that best encapsulates the situation that we're in. Sin is a Hebrew word. It means to miss the mark. And it's funny, when I talk to atheists and agnostics, you know, some of them are scornful, as you say, or they make fun of the, the Christian idea, oh, you Christians think we're broken, you think there's something wrong with us. And I turn it around on them, and I'd say, well, are there things that you do, that we do, uh, that are wrong, that are callous, that are selfish, that are evil? And my atheist friends will say, well, yeah, we make mistakes. And I'm like, well, no, when I'm balancing my checkbook and I forget to carry the one, that's a mistake. But when I choose to do something that hurts another person, even seriously, that lies outside the realm of mistake. You need to have a stronger word, and the word sin encapsulates that. So that's, that's why things are broken when we turn away from God and turn inward instead of outward to him. And I think the world will be fixed when more of us, especially believers who claim to do so but aren't, are willing to do that. You know, some of my friends, they uh, use the term navel-gazing. You know, the world's not working because we're constantly looking at our own navel, you know, this self-centeredness. Instead of looking vertically or horizontally, we look down at our navel. And that's where like so many problems happen in the world, right? It all starts with us. What shows up for you in that? Well, I think one thing, especially nowadays, where people have trouble in the world is, and I think a lot of this comes from really in the past 200, 300 years or so, I think with the rise of fiction, that people, especially nowadays, not even just reading books, but watching movies, for example, people like to go to the movies, they like escapism, they like television shows. And so they imagine that their life is like a miniature movie, and they're the protagonist. And so what makes any great movie? Well, you know, if I, you know, get the girl, beat the bad guy and have my happy ending, and everything works out well, and that maybe there's a few challenges along the way, but they're easily overcome, things like that. But life is not a movie. You are not a Hollywood star. Uh, you are the protagonist of your own story. 
but God may give you challenges, sacrifices, trials. He can give them to any of us. And we think, well, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have to do this. I should be able to do the things that I want in my story. People think they're the authors of their own stories. I want to write the story mm -hmm. that I want and say, well, we are authors of it in one sense. And that we can always choose, you know, whether we choose the good or not the good, choosing good or evil. But there's other things that God may be calling us to and has given us in our lives for us to accept. And we have to be open to that. And if we're not, once again, we turn back into ourselves. That's where the problems come. And that's where people when their own stories and say, my happiness matters most to broken families, abandoned children, uh, leads to violence. And that's where I think a lot of this brokenness comes from. You know, Trent, I really like this uh, metaphor that you're painting, right? That we try to become the authors of our own life rather than than submitting to the author of all life, right? And what happens with, uh, you know, many of us when we try to write, I know firsthand, occasionally I, I have writer's block. Like, what do I do then, right? When I don't know what to write in my own story and the freedom to know that I don't have to come up with anything, the story's already written. And I think that's what I'm really hearing you say right now. The story's already written by the creator of the universe for each and every one of our lives. And we don't have to constantly come up with the storyline and the plot. So right. yeah. and I, I think what happens in the modern age and what's hard for people is people still seek out meaning. I was reading an article the other day about those who are non-religious. Many of them still believe in God or a higher power. And in fact, uh, people who are non-religious are more likely to believe in paranormal phenomena, ghosts and psychics and things like that, because they want the world to have some kind of, uh, meaning or a story, if you will, beyond the merely material or merely the accidental. Uh, so we, when we say the story is already written, that doesn't mean God has preordained everything we do and we're just puppets or marionettes. What it means is that God in his providence created us. He loves us. The future does not surprise him in one bit. He sees it now as the present to him. He sees everything we will freely choose yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the question is, in that grand story he has for us, will we say yes to him to have the ending he really wants for us and has planned out for us if we choose it if we so choose it or will we follow our own will or is it going to be it's my will be done or thy will be done it's kind of the choice you know this brings up a interesting argument in my head that you probably tackle thousands of times but the, the argument of predestination and where does where's that line where if God already sees, as you say, my entire future and he's not surprised by anything, yet at the same time, there's that counterbalance of my free will right. where I can choose which direction it's not predetermined. Like, what if I choose completely outside of that will, that plan? then what happens? Did God already know that's going to happen? Then why is the plan there? Could you go ahead and tackle that for us? Sure. And this is a problem that's been in theology. Theologians have wondered about uh, for over a thousand years, uh, going back, uh, really even uh, non-Christian philosophers have thought about it going back even further, that if God knows the future, uh, and he's infallible, he's all-knowing, does that mean that the future can't change? Has my story been set in stone? Can anything be changed? Now, I think the problem with this is that we imagine that God is a character in the story like us, and so God is just, 
he's kind of invisibly hovering around you and I as we're doing this podcast and he's in the universe right now. And because he's got this amazing mind of his, he just knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But that's not God. Since God created space and time, God is not bound by space. He's also not bound by time either. God is timeless. So all moments of time are equally present to God, the past, present, and future. Uh, so, you know, if me watching you right now on the podcast doesn't, you know, you could choose to stand up from your seat to readjust your seat. Me watching you doesn't affect your ability to do that. So if God is watching me in the future, it's present to him when he sees that, that doesn't affect, um, that doesn't affect my freedom there. The ancient the philosopher, the medieval philosopher Boethius, he used this analogy that God's view of time and events is sort of like if I got up on a really high tower and I could see a parade in the city underneath me. Now, if I'm standing on the street, I see one little you know, parade member go by one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. That's like being in time. But God is on the tower and he sees all of it at once, but that doesn't affect the actions of each person in the parade and what they do. To give mm -hmm. it a more modern update, if you and I are standing on the top of a skyscraper, and you know we're on the observation deck and we look down and we see two cars going really fast at the intersection we can say oh they're going to hit each other and we know what they're going to do because of the position the vantage point we are in but the fact that you and i know that doesn't mean that we caused it to happen we're mm -hmm. just in a privileged position to be able to see and know that it will happen so the error here is thinking that god's knowledge of the future is what determines the future. And that's a, a logical jump without merit. So yeah, so God knows the future and he has a plan for us uh, that he wants for us. He'll put things in our life to draw us closer to him. But I would say oh, it's kind of like a road he's already paved for us, but he's also included and allowed for off ramps and on ramps. So he knows that we might choose certain off ramps, but there's always an on ramp to get back on what he would want for us. And he knows what we will and we won't choose, but simply because he knows what we're going to choose doesn't mean that he has determined it. It is always up still to our freedom and we are responsible for those choices we make. Okay, so thank you for painting that distinction because that's really helpful. I literally just had a uh, phone chat with a, a close friend of mine yesterday and she just had a, her annulment finalized and mm. she got the paperwork in the mail. Yeah. And she's like, Joseph, I got, I had to call you because I thought this was going to be a happy celebratory moment for me, but instead it's occurring as sadness. Like I, I, I've been crying all morning and I just yeah. don't know why. And she's like, I feel like, like it was all like a, a mistake, like the whole marriage and everything, but I have these beautiful, you know, boys and my sons and everything. And I said, you know, and, and, God just put a thought in my head that I shared with her. And I said, you know, it's interesting because what shows up for me right now is that God had you on this path, right? His perfect plan for your life. And, you know, you're walking through the woods on the path and everything's good and the sun is shining and everything. And then all of a sudden to the right, you saw a detour and you said, you know what? I kind of want to go that direction. And you broke off the, the proven path that God had for you and your life. And you went off on this detour, but along the way, you found like these great little, you know, treasures, like these little flowers and things. And now God has called you back. Like he called out, like, 
where are you? Where are you? Like Adam and Eve, right? Like, where are you in the garden? Where did you go? And he called you back to the path and now you're back on the path. But that doesn't undo the detour and the beautiful treasures that you call your sons that you picked up along the way. But you're back on God's plan. Like what shows up for you in that metaphor? Can you build upon that for some yeah. of our listeners? Well, I think that it is a wonderful example of God's providence and how because God is all powerful and he's all knowing, he can use anything to accomplish his will, even our freely chosen actions for good or for evil. And so he can know that we might choose to do something that's uh, not in our interest. We might choose to disobey him, but he can still uh, from that bring good from these, these bad decisions we make. I mean, if you go all the way back to the very first sin in human history, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God wasn't surprised by that. He knew that. And so he, he allowed this evil to take place because he could bring a greater good from it, namely the incarnation and the redemption of human beings through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. So that's why at the Easter vigil, the exultate, we sing uh, in, in Latin, O Felix culpa, O happy fault, uh, the necessary sin of Adam that brought us so great a redeemer. And so, yeah, it's interesting what, what she said, your friend, about, well, I sh why shouldn't I be happy? And I think that's because part of her is listening to our society's view of marriage and happiness. And our society's view of happiness is about autonomy, that what makes me happy in life is getting to do what I want. And so I'm happy when I want to do something and I get to do it, I should be happy. And so that's why people, you know, it's trendy to celebrate divorce parties now. Like, I didn't want to be married. No, I'm not married. Yay, I can be happy and I can celebrate that. But people deep down know that sometimes when I want to do something, it's not what's best for me. It makes me sad. Like, mm. you know, I might want to eat an entire bag of Doritos potato chips, but guess what? It's not going to make me happy. I want to do that, but it wasn't good for me. So she's recognizing here this annulment is confirmation of, of a great sadness in her life of entering into a union she thought was a marriage, but turned out was not. And so there's that deprivation, that loss of goodness, the loss of not having a marriage that should have been there. And but thankfully, in God's providence, she's still blessed with children and as the church's code of canon law says children born from marriages that were annulled, they are not illegitimate in any way. There's you know, there's nothing wrong with them as children made in the image and likeness of God. There's another example that God can bring good from the bad decisions uh, that we make. And sometimes God allows us to endure suffering from our sins or other people's sins for something for us to learn and grow from and be able to help others as well. This may be a good opportunity for her to be able to help her own children after having been through, for example, this the whole process of having a marriage annulled. That's really powerful. So what I'm hearing you say is that nothing is wasted with God. Like even when we go off on the detours and he brings us back, he'll use and give us lessons along the way that just make us better versions of ourselves, and that we can now pass on, right? As legacy to our, to our own children. That's like right. Now that does, well, I just wanted to add though, that does not mean of course that God says, yeah, get out there and sin because I'm going to make something good from it. <laughs> because sometimes what the lesson he gives us, the good he brings from us when he allows us to sin, for example, is to experience the joy, the, the bittersweet joy of repentance, of, mm. of what it's like to feel his mercy 
mm-hmm. and to be reconciled to him and to not take for granted the grace that he has given us that sometimes we only we only really appreciate god his goodness and his grace when we've been far from it uh so if, that's another thing that we, we should always keep in mind no i think you added that really well it's like it's really hard to experience fully experience gratitude when you have no pain to contrast it with but if you've right. gone through the 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 fawns and the scrapes and of life, it's like when God's mercy calls you back home onto that 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 uh, gentle path. It's like man, you just appreciate the warm sunlight on your face and the gentleness of it because you were in the darkness, right. you know. So I really get that. I'd like to shift um, our chat today uh, in a little bit of a different direction. I'd really like to get personal with you, and what I'm going to ask you to do is be as vulnerable as possible and transparent. That's really where we connect. Um, is is in our human brokenness, I think, because I believe we're all the same in our struggles. And um, so what I'm going to ask you is, first off, what faith were you raised in? Well, I was raised in a nominally religious home. My, my mom uh, was is Catholic, no longer practicing. My dad is Jewish. So, you know, we, we would watch Bible stories on VHS. We learned about Jesus, but we didn't go to church. So I wasn't really raised... Um, in any particular denomination, I, nominal religious, nominal Christianity is probably what I would call it. Got it. What was that like for you uh, back then? Um, I'm guessing that you probably had friends that had uh, very f- religious households. Um, how did that occur for you uh, in your own life? Sure. Now, growing up in junior high and high school, most of my friends were actually not religious. It wasn't until I met some Catholics who I knew as acquaintances at school in their Catholic youth group and started attending that, that I developed friendships with people who were, who were quite religious and quite devout. And that really helped me to understand what Christianity was all about, understand the Catholic church, helped to answer misrepresentations and distortions of the faith that I, you know, had been subject to before that. So that I could really understand the, the beauty of the faith and really want to be interested in it more to learn it, to research it and to study it. I get that. So I think it's easy to say that we know God, but it's, it's really difficult uh, for many of us to trust God because we've never experienced him in a real and tangible way. When was the first time that you experienced God? And in that moment, you knew like God exists. He's my father. I am his son. Like, Tell us that story, paint us a really vivid picture and take us back to that place, would you? Well, the very first time uh, during my conversion experience, I remember bits and pieces of it all, all coming together. I mean, it was well, probably about 15, 17, about 17 years ago, 16, you know, 17, 18 years ago. But I remember I, I was someone who's very factual and you know, objective. I like to study. I'm not a super emotional person. But I, so I stayed up and I had been watching debates, listening to debates between Christians and atheists. And one night I was listening to a bunch on the resurrection of Christ and just all kind of clicked. And I, you know, opened my palms um, heavenward and just prayed, you know, Jesus, if you're out there, let me know. I, I really believe you're real. I, I, you really did rise from the dead. I'm, I'm ready to be a Christian and just felt that movement of grace on my heart just to utter this prayer to have more of a personal connection with uh, the person, the person of Jesus Christ that had been the subject of of study for me for 
for several months as I wanted to understand who was right, atheists or Christians. No, I get that. So let me ask you this. When it comes to who is right, atheists or Christians, as Christians, is there a need for us to persuade non-believers to believe? Or as a counter, are we okay or are we fine just being witnesses in our own life, loving on those people in our life, but not actually like getting into these intellectual debates with them over what is truth? Does God exist? Does he not exist? Is my question clear? Yes, it's very clear. And I would say that it's not an issue of either or, that you can love other people, be compassionate towards them, be a good witness of your faith and live out your faith with them, but also explain and defend your faith, answer their questions and share it with them. I would also argue that it is very unloving to refuse to talk about your faith with other people out of fear that you will offend them. Because mm. we have to understand that apart from the grace of God, we have no hope whatsoever of spending eternity with him. There's this common mindset that, well, when people die, God will sort it all out and they'll all go to heaven anyways. But the problem is that, yeah, you might see people, they're, they're nice people because they've been blessed with natural dispositions that God gave them. But those are all things here in the natural world and they, they will pass away. And so if that person does not have the grace of God in their hearts to be able to lift themselves from the natural to the supernatural, then there isn't much hope at all that they'll be able to spend eternity with God. I mean, God wants all people to be saved. It is possible for anyone to be saved, but it does not mean everyone will be automatically because we're still slaves of sin. We're tempted. All of us are tempted day in and day out. And to deprive someone of the grace of God and say, well, I'm not going to tell them about the sacraments. I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. That I don't want to offend them. You're depriving them of the grace that would be incredibly helpful to help them avoid sin and things that are bad for them that will hurt them. So I so, get that. So I get that. So like if, if I say I love these people, my friends, my family, then it's, it should just be within my heart as a natural thing to want to bring them to what is good, right. to what is truth, to what I've experienced. Good. And I think the problem for many people, they think it's unloving is because they think, well, the, the way to share that is to preach or to be preachy. And you just kind of talk at someone and give them a monologue or you grill them about what they believe, but you can share the truth in a loving way. And the way I prefer to do it is to ask people questions first about what they believe, uh, just to understand what they believe. And then gentle questions to maybe show an incoherency or a misunderstanding that they have. And then say, you know, Hey, this has been helpful for me. The reason I'm Catholic is here's the stuff that I find to be very moving or very powerful or, to have a lot of evidence here. Uh, can I share it with you? This is what's made a big impact for me. And so then you're kind of doing it, you're sharing things almost in a bio autobiographical way without saying, here's what you should believe, you better believe it or else. Mm. And it's like, you're, you know, you're, you're giving it to that person. I would say scripture is very clear. We have a responsibility to do that. First Peter 3.15 says, we should always be ready to give a reason for the hope within, but to do so with gentleness and with reverence. So we can do that and we should do that. And that's why I model on Catholic Answers Live, the way you can do that is just to ask a lot of very good questions to lead people closer to the truth.
You bring to mind immediately for me in my own personal life, I had a, a very good friend and she was actually uh, someone I was uh, dating at the time. And I, I remember she was atheist, right? That was her position or more agnostic. You know, she was kind of in between, very young millennial. And uh, I remember asking her because she, she, she would, she was always curious about me. She's like, so you going to church again this Sunday? I was like, yep, it's kind of a thing, like every Sunday, right? And, and But the, it was a healthy curiosity. And she would ask me about my faith, and she would bring up the conversation. And every now and then, not every now and then, just in conversation, I wasn't shy about saying God or or when it was relevant, right? Because that's just how I speak. And it got to the point where one day I just looked her in the eye and I said, listen, do you want to believe that there's a God? Like, do you want to believe that he exists? And she was like, yeah, I kind of do. Yeah. I was like, why? She's like, well, if, if I don't, then none of this makes any sense. Like life. Yeah. Life doesn't make sense if there's not someone who designed it. And I was like, so where's the holdup? She's like, intellectually, I need evidence. Like, she's a brilliant PhD student. And, and, right. and I was like, okay, got it. So just so you know, I cannot provide that evidence for you. I'm not intellectually gifted like a Trent Horn, for instance, right? Um, however, what I can do is I'm very gifted at asking the right questions. Mm. And I was like, if you want the right answers to anything in life, you have to ask the right question. So she's like, okay, what's the question? I said, well, the next time you're alone and you're in quiet time, you know, I'd like you to just look up to the sky, look up to heaven and say, God, if you exist, show me in my life that you exist and say it with a sincere heart, like want him to show you, then shut up and then watch in your life. And he will show up in your life and he will show you he's real. And she was like, okay. Well, a few weeks later, um, she came back to me and she's like, guess what? I was like, what? And she goes, I believe God's real. And I was like, what? Like, what happened? She's like, well, I did what she said. And I, I said, God, if you're real, show me you're real. And then I went on this like student retreat for my college. And we were at this uh, like camp type of place. And I'm with all these girls and they're all gossiping about people and everything. And I just hate that. Like, and I just need to get away from them. So I went like walking on the grounds and there was like this little Catholic chapel on the ground. So I walked in and I just sat down and it was so calm and peaceful and everything. And as I'm sitting there, she's like, within moments, I just felt this pure love and warmth that just like covered me. And in that very moment, Joseph, I knew God was real. Like I couldn't intellectually get it, but I just knew yeah. he was real and he was my father. And I was like, wow. Like what shows up for you in that trend? Well, what shows up for me is that you can believe that God exists and you can do so for what I call non-rational reasons. That's not mm. the same as irrational. Something is irrational if you, it, it goes against reason, you know, so if you believe something, say, well, you know, the, the earth is flat, for example, say, well, you know, that's irrational. It goes against reason. But we believe many things in life, not because we sat down and said, oh, well, here's the evidence and here's what the data says. And we, you know, we, we put all that together uh, and, and arrive at our conclusion. Like when I look off, you know, when I, you know, you told me before the show, you used to live here in San Diego. When I go to Sunset Cliffs and I watch the sunset 
and I see that and I say, this is beautiful. And, it's, and I just say, not merely as an opinion, like it is a fact that it, this is beautiful. Uh, now there's, you know, there's rational reasons you would say, well, because the light refracts against the atmosphere in this way and humans are designed to appreciate these particular color sets and note this, this symmetry here, or, you know, if you see anything, if you see, you know, your spouse, for example, oh, they're beautiful. Well, that's because of the facial symmetry, this or that. Uh, yes, there are those rational reasons there, but you don't have to know them to that when you non-rationally just look and say, oh, it's just beautiful. How do you know that? Well, I just know I can see it. Mm -hmm. I just know it just, it, it appears to me. And that can be the same. And I think that's the same for God, that God's existence can be known by following the data and the evidence in a chain of arguments. But because God is a person and can make himself known to us, we can just immediately experience him. And so that is another way to come to know him. And it's not in conflict between following the arguments and then simply directly experiencing him. I love that you created uh, a this and that scenario. It doesn't have to be either or, right? God can reveal himself however he chooses. He is God. Right. And he's a person, right? The same way we experience love with certain individuals, like there's just this falling in love, right? That romantic love. Like, why does that happen? We're not going to sit there and intellectually break it down and diagnose it. We're just going to go, I am in love with this person well, explain yourself. Give me factual evidence. Like nobody's going to say that, right? So why do right. we do that with God? Yeah. Well, now I think that's actually a good analogy uh, to tease it out a bit more. Let's say you're going to get married to somebody. Uh, you know, you would, you fell in love and you feel that love and attraction to them. And though part of it is that it, the reason you love them is because you identify things in them that are good. And so you can identify the good in another that Love is to will the good for another. So when you fall in love with another person, it's because you are attracted to good features of their existence, good aspects of their very being. And so in a non-rational way, you just simply identify them, grapple onto them and know this is, this is good. I don't want to abandon this. But then also before you make this, the decision to commit to this person, you say, well, I've spoken with them. I see that these goods are enduring. They're not just trying to pull the wool over my eyes. I have reasons to know that this person really is kind and generous and thoughtful. And, and those, these good qualities, they are good qualities because I know how, how good they are for others. So even in that example of falling in love with another person, there's a great mix of the non-rational just affection of being attracted to that which is good, but also the rational understanding this person is good and these qualities I love really are good. And I think that's the same for God, for all of us, that any believer can both be attracted to God and what God has revealed, like be attracted to the beauty of the liturgy, the beauty of the mass, beauty of go, you know, going to church to receive our Lord and be attracted to that. But then also to know, well, here is why I am attracted to it, because it is Jesus in the Eucharist, because he did say so. So once again, it's not either or, it's, it's a both and of the argument from beauty and non-rational attraction and the argument from truth and, and rational logical deduction. So I have this other friend, and I'm going to ask you a specific question with this uh, quick story. I have this other friend who is what I consider an angry atheist right? The kind that you speak about in your book, Answering Atheism, where they, he goes out of his way 
to ridicule and belittle the beliefs of others who believe in a higher power, who believe that God exists and, to, and who believe that they're not just an accident, right, in this universe. And he uses term, um, um, ridicules like, uh, yeah, you all believe in the purple dinosaur in the sky, you know, like Barney or whatever, and it's all this woo-woo type of thing. And it's, it's childhood, it's childish beliefs. That's what Christianity is. It's all childish stuff. And you all need to mature, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting because I, I look at him, I'm like, what do you believe? Right. And, and he shares with me, he believes in um, so many, like he goes through the list of like treat people with kindness and be fair to others and all these, he's listing the virtues, right. That we believe as Christians, he just has a different label for it. And he lives a, his life with a certain morality. And right. he's, he's a better Christian than some of the Christians I know. He's just in denial. Right. And I'm like, dude, do you get that you're a Christian? Like, do you get it? You just, you're denying what it, what is so, but you're living all these Christian values and belief systems. Like, and he, that, oh, that just fires him up and he gets so angry about that. Yeah. But it's, he has a certain morality that is aligned with Christ's teachings. Yeah. So how do we speak to a gentleman like that? Like, go ahead and, and connect Build a bridge between the two. Sure. Well, I think first, it's not uncommon for people who are non-religious to access the moral law because God writ it, wrote the moral law into our human nature. In Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, 14 through 16, St. Paul talks about how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, even though they didn't receive the law of Moses written in the Torah, they did receive the law of God written on their hearts and God would judge them for the law written on their very hearts. And that takes the form of a conscience. So people know deep down there's ways we ought to live. There's these objective rules. It's funny, your friend said, well, that's childish. You believe these things. And I would ask him, what do you mean by childish? Because I'd ask him, where did you first learn that you should treat people with kindness? When was the the earliest point you remember learning, I should treat people with kindness, I should be fair, I should be loving. I'll bet you it was when he was a child. But imagine if I said, well, that's a childish belief then. Well, it's just because I learned it when I was a child does not mean it is childish or that there's something wrong with it. It means it's very good. We should tell our children important truths. And that's the same for God, that if God exists and God loves you, we would tell our children that. Something is only childish if an adult believes it and it contradicts the evidence that we have. So that's why I would say to him, well, well you know, if God is such a, a childish belief, like a big dinosaur in the sky, tell me what about God is contradictory about the idea that God just is the perfect act of being all truth, goodness, and beauty is in one undivided, infinite act of being that's God, anything good, perfect, true, and beautiful, infinite being itself. That's God. And that's why our beings, this universe exists because God brought it into existence. And that's why there is goodness. So your friend who says, well, I try to be a good person. We, you should treat other people with kindness. You know, I'd ask him, look, would you agree that moral rules, morality is a property of people? You know, when we look in the animal kingdom, uh, when the lion eats the zebra, that's not murder. That's lunch. You know, uh, when, when the, 
the the gorilla forcibly copulates with the other gorilla that's not rape that's mating you know so morality is a, a something not in the natural world it's something just among persons human beings but then i'd say well does it just come from us because what if we all got together and said hey uh, let's bring back slavery and and 90% of us agree Would that make it right well no so that means if morality is is objective and we can't change it as persons and morality relates to persons that means that unchanging moral truths got to come from some kind of unchanging perfect person and an unchanging perfect person who exists in all time and places kind of sounds like God to me and so that might be one way to kind of bring things around a little bit. I really appreciate that, right? It's like holding on to these, our own personal truth and our own personal morality, like we're the source of it, is such a, to me, that's childish, right? Because that is neglecting the very fact that you just brought up, which is, hey, this human morality that exists, it's an external. It's already outside of us. That's why we're all aligned with it, right? right. Now we can bring it into ourselves internally, right? And it is written on our heart, but it's something that's outside of us. So where the heck did it come from? Why right. is it only in the human person, right? And I think that's a great question. So let me ask you this as well, Trent. Uh, so going back to that, um, that gal that I, I mentioned earlier um, that I dated, right? Uh, she came to experience God for the first time in her life because she asked God to show himself to her. However, that's about as far as it's gone. She mm -hmm. now has a loving relationship with God the Father. Mm -hmm. What she wrestles with is Christianity, She's like, I cannot believe in the Bible. Like it's just written by human people and, and humans are broken and messed up and everything. I don't believe that's the divine word of God. Like, and Joseph, until like there is evidence that my intellect gets that Christianity is God's religion here on earth, I'm not going to believe anything. Yeah. What would you say to her, Trent? Well, I think what's important here, and this is difficult. Some people think, well, I can't be a Christian unless I, I believe the Bible in its entirety. So I'm gonna start at Genesis and read all the way through it. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, with its historical background, linguistic background, uh, you know, that the fact that it's written in different genres, that some people think the Bible is just uh, God's diary about what happened in the past and his actions in history. And it's written like a newspaper account when really there's different genres. There's non-literal genres, there's stories in there. Like when Jesus told the story about the prodigal son, it doesn't mean there was actually a guy at that time who went, spent all his money and came back to his dad and said he was sorry. It was a story. Uh, and other parts of the Bible are maybe written in that genre, that they're uh, educational fiction or epic poetry. There are law codes. There are uh, stories with bad characters where bad things happen. And people think, why is this in the Bible? This is obscene. This is violent. And I'll say, well, the reason it's there is because the moral of the story is don't do this, or here's what happened if you do do this. In fact, the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges is this, here's what's not, what to not do. Don't do this. Johnny, don't, uh, basically. So instead of being overwhelmed by, I got to get the Bible right before I can be a Christian, I would just point the person to Jesus and say, look, let's just go to a part of the Bible. Let's go to Jesus, the most important part. Uh, is Jesus who he said he was? Jesus said that 
you know, that before Abraham was, I am. He used the sacred name of God in Judaism that if you even just said this name, you could commit blasphemy. He applied the name to himself. He went around, he, he forgave people's sins. He, he said he had authority from God the Father to confer kingdoms like the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. Was he who he said he was, and did he rise from the dead? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why did all of his apostles go around saying that he did and were willing to die for that, that falsehood? So pointing the person to Jesus, the person of Jesus, and asking them, who do you say that he is, to paraphrase what Jesus asked Peter and the apostles in Matthew 16, can be helpful. Because now you've got a narrower target. You don't have to defend all the different parts of the Bible. You don't have to get into all the weeds here. Just focus on who is Jesus. If he was who he said he was, then look, Jesus gave us a church. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. He believed in the Bible, so why shouldn't we? And that can get, keep us narrower to say, look, is he who he said he was, and did he rise from the dead? And if he didn't, how do you explain how, the, how this whole faith got started? Because in the ancient world, there were a lot of people who said they were the Messiah. And then they, they would get killed, or they would get exiled. And their followers just went to the next Messiah. But Jesus' followers were different. They, it, that usually death was the defeat of a potential Messiah. But death was the victory for these people. So why would they proclaim this totally counterintuitive notion unless Jesus really did show through his resurrection that he had defeated death and was truly victorious? That's powerful. I would also just add to that, asking the question, why did the church that Jesus founded on planet Earth, why does it still exist over 2,000 years later with everything it's been through with all the human brokenness from the top to the bottom why does it still exist right i believe jesus said it himself right the gates of hell will not conquer this right upon this rock peter i will build my church right and the gates of hell will not prevail and it's like here we are two thousand plus years later and the gates of hell have not prevailed if this was just from humans origin why does it still exist? There's nothing else that exists like that from human origin. Why this one thing? What do you want to add to that? Well, no, I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And in fact, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century talked about uh, that there are motives of credibility, things that give us belief, why we should believe in Christianity and why believe in the church. And one of those he put forward was how the church, the church has endured in spite of what seemed to many to be insurmountable obstacles, the fall of Rome, the sacking of Western Europe by the Visigoths and the, the barbarian hordes, uh, that the church itself, no matter what gets thrown at it, the, the crusade, or sorry, the uh, uh, Muslim expansionists, the armies of, of Islam, Ottoman Empire, continually driven back. And even today, just everyone wants to attack the church, cut it up, dice it up, yet it still stands. And people, the fact that they want to attack it, that they don't just write it off as silly, that they see it as a threat, shows that they see there is something important there and not something that's just simply silly. I get that. So bringing us back to your, your humanity, Trent, right? We all have crises of faith at different times in our journey with God. Take us back really quick and briefly, uh, maybe in 60 to 90 seconds. When was the last time you had a crisis of faith personally? Please be transparent and vulnerable and tell us about that and how you got through it. You know, my crisis of faith, which is interesting, it does not involve a crisis about uh, whether God exists or whether he loves me or whether Christianity is true is more a crisis of wondering, 
should I be doing this, especially my role, my uh, role at the apostolate here at Catholic Answers of being an apologist and publicly speaking, defending, writing about the faith, you feel this tremendous weight on your shoulders. Like, what if I get this wrong? I made this error. Or what if I'm not doing this right? What if I don't know enough? What if I'm not the right person who's called for this and thinking, maybe I should just quit all this. Maybe I'm not the right person. There's other people better than this, or I make all these mistakes and uh, being very critical of myself and thinking, I, I, I'm not cut out for this. But through prayer and through spiritual direction, I've been helped to see, well, no, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. And that if there's so many other objective things confirming this is what I should be doing, I shouldn't let my own pride and my own doubts get in the way. And that'd be my same advice to your listeners that they may be wondering, how is God calling me to do this work? Or even to other things like to still remain in a marriage or to be a good parent when I feel like I've made so many mistakes. And we're not defined by those things we've done in the past because through sacraments like confession and the Eucharist, we can be healed of those sins and always be able to move forward and to let God work through us and apropos to your own podcast, work through our brokenness to be able to achieve many good things. I love that. You know, I, I have another podcast, a business one called First 100K. And the number one uh, consistent pattern that shows up in all my guests, whether they're doing 100,000 a year in gross revenue or 100 million a year, the same thing shows up, imposter syndrome. They all somehow think like they're always comparing themselves to like, what's that next thing or comparing yourself to this. I'm not cut out. If people ever found out who I really am, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't love me. And what I just heard you say, Trent, is that that shows up in faith as well. This imposter syndrome. Like I look at you and I'm like, are you kidding me? Like as you're saying that from an objective standpoint, me looking into you, Trent Horn, like I look at you and I'm like, dude, your intellect that God has given you, like, like blows me away. And it's the brilliance and the way you just like capture everything. Right. And, and then articulate it back. And, and you, here you are in your humanity, your brokenness, feeling like, man, am I really equipped for this? You know, this people so far better than me that could do better, etc. And it's like, and then I bet there's someone looking at me and saying the same freaking thing. Look at this guy, Joseph, he's just like doing this and whatever. And we all have these, this imposter syndrome. Yeah. And, and I, I think it comes from the enemy, right? He mm -hmm. wants us to believe that we, are, we don't have the identity as sons and daughters of God the Father, that God the Father is not a good father, and that we can't trust him, right? Even with his plan for our life. What shows up for you in that? And we'll wrap yeah, up. Well, on this and point. that's what we have to remember what Jesus said in the Gospels, that uh, ask your heavenly father and he will give to you. And this is primarily speaking, though, about spiritual gifts, that when you look at even earthly fathers, even kind of crummy earthly fathers, if you ask your father for an egg, he doesn't give you a scorpion. You know that uh, even, uh, even bad fathers know how to still treat their children when they can and, you know, want to show how they can provide. How much more so will your heavenly father who knows what you need before you have to ask for it, knows every hair on your head, the number of hairs on your head. He knows all these things. He's just waiting for us to ask him so that we can show our childlike, not childish, our childlike humility and trust in him so that we can learn to grow and mature spiritually to become holy because he is holy. And that's always a continual process in our lives that we have to be firmly committed to as people of faith. 
Trent, that was fantastic. I want to wrap this up in a bow. Go ahead and share with Broken Catholic Nation, what is the one thing that you want our listener to know right now about believing in God and, and what that does in your life versus having no belief in God? Sure. The one thing I would say is this. God knows you better than you know yourself. And when you look in yourself, you may think that I don't have a feeling for God. I'm not sure he's there. Even if God was there, I don't know if he even wants me. He, what is he, does he want anything to do with me with things that I've done in the past? God knows you and your sins and faults better than you do. And he still loves you in spite of all of that because he wants the son or daughter he made in his image to spend eternity with him. And he wants you just to take everything you are, the good and the bad, and to offer it up to him to continue to renew you and to make you, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, to make you a new creation, to make all of us, both of us, uh, us included here on this podcast today, new creations in him. The only person stopping us from doing that is us. Love it. So BC Nation, just to wrap that one up, that trench just landed, total wisdom, bomb explosion. God absolutely loves your brokenness. Think of yourself as a, a vase, right? A vase. Uh, and you got all these cracks in you from, from life. And God wants to pour his light through you. And his light shows up for others through the cracks. And it's those very cracks that he loves most that make you so unique and one of a kind as a vase. So believe that. Show up to God with all the cracks. Show up with all the brokenness. Say, God, I give you all of it. I give you everything. Like, love me as I am. I just want to know that you're real. I want to know your plan for my life. BC Nation, that's your challenge this week. So we are speaking with Trent Horn. You can find him at TrentHorn.com. That's TrentHorn.com. He is a Catholic apologist for CatholicAnswers.com. And he is a very successful best-selling author. Uh, you can check out his book at Answering Atheism. That's Answering Atheism. You can find that in all the major retailers. And Trent, this is my favorite part of the show. Uh, welcome to the confession round. So this is, we're not, we don't have a Catholic priest here or anything like that, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you 12 quick fire questions. Okay. You'll have about three seconds to answer each. Don't overthink it. It's just for right. fun. First sure. thing that comes to you, are you ready, sir? All right. All right, Trent, what's your favorite sound? Uh, boom. <laughs> Got it. What's your least favorite sound? Nails on a chalkboard. Got it. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? A train engineer. Got it. What are you most afraid of? Um, something bad happening to my family. Got that. What did you spend way too much time doing in your 20s? Uh, playing video games. <laughs> Got it. What secret fear do you have about God? Um, that he doesn't love me, even though I know that's irrational. Mm, got that. Very human. What do you wish you had learned sooner about God? Um, that he does love me and it's, and it's irrational to deny that. Got it. What's a new habit you want to form? Uh, just to be able to commit and strengthen and increase daily prayer. Cause we should always pray without ceasing. Love it. What's a bad habit you want to break? Um, 
probably just being judgmental of others and myself. Got it. Pick three words to describe who you are now, Trent. Um, broken, uh, human, uh, disciple. Pick three words to describe who you were before you experienced God in your life. Broken, human, lost. <laughs> Got that. Imagine sometime in the distant future, and there you are standing in front of your tombstone. Read to us what it says on it. Uh, kept the faith. Mm, got that. So simple. Trent, last question. If you could come back to life after you died and tell your family and friends only one piece of advice, what would you say to them? Uh, always have faith and pray for me because I'm praying for you. Love it. Trent, thanks for joining us today. Um, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you? I'd recommend they could go to my website, trenthorn.com. That's a great place to contact me. For example, if you'd like me to speak at your parish or event, uh, and if you'd like to learn more about my own podcast, my podcast is called the council of Trent, C O U N S E L council of Trent. And that's available on iTunes, Google play, and for premium subscription at trenthornpodcast.com. I love the play on words on that. The Council of Trent, right? It's like the Council of Trent, historical value to that. And then the Council of Trent. If you, BC Nation, if you want some wise counsel from Trent, go check out the Council of Trent podcast. I'm sure it's a hoot. So Trent, thank you for joining us today. I wish you the love, forgiveness, and transformation of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. BC Nation, we exceeded our six-month goal. We now have listeners in over 34 countries. Praise God. We are expanding his message. I want to set the vision of let's reach 60 countries, right? Let's double this. Let's God, get God's message out to the world. We are all broken. We all have the same struggles, yet we isolate ourselves. We're trying to do it alone, and the enemy wants us isolated because then we're easy targets. So let's stop that. Join me in the fight. Go to brokencatholic.com. Become a patron of the show. I am Joseph Warren, and you were made for greatness. So stop being a wuss and start being a winner. Have a blessed day, and I will see you right back here next week. God bless you.